The first time that appears in the Bible in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, it says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, but thou shalt in any wise rebuke him and not suffer a sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So for Westboro, it's a very, that's a very clear passage that to love your neighbor is to rebuke him when you see him sinning. And that if you don't do that, then you hate your brother in your heart. That was Megan Phelps Roper. Our managing editor, Kate Lucky, recently interviewed her about her book, Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. We'll be hearing that interview in a moment. I'm also here with some of the Commonwealth staff to talk about our fall books issue. This is the Commonweal Podcast. All right, so I'm here today with Regina Munch, our assistant editor. Hello. And uh, Anthony Domestico, our literary contributor. Hey there. And we're going to talk a little bit about our fall books issue, the November issue of Commonweal. And uh, Tony, I'm going to start with you because uh, your piece, you have a profile of the poet Fanny Howe. And the profile is really great and, and very interesting. And I think is a good way for people who don't know much about her, of course, to, to get to know about her work. And I think one of the things that was interesting that you got to discuss with her is you know, stuff about her faith journey and the way she came around to her Catholicism. Yeah, so... Uh... Fanny is from a kind of venerable New England family, and uh, she didn't grow up with much in in the way of uh, faith. She came to the church in the early 70s. She married a radical black poet named Carl Senna in 1968, and Senna was himself Catholic, and his mother, uh, Fanny's mother-in-law, was was a very devout practicing Catholic. And Fanny started attending Mass with her mother-in-law regularly. She said she didn't yet take uh, the Eucharist. She baptized her two children into the church. And in the 1970s, while Fanny was raising uh, her two biracial children, you know, Boston was going through some some really terrible racial drama in the busing crisis. And she saw the Catholic Church really as the one place in which her children were at home in the city. Uh, that the church, she saw it really as a home for the marginalized, the racially marginalized, the economically marginalized. And she attended mass regularly with her mother-in-law. She started reading Simone Weil. And at some point in the 70s, she decided to to become Catholic and receive the Eucharist. And she's been attending regularly since. She, she has a, still has a, a vexed relationship to the institutional church. As you know, many of us, she has problems with certain um, kind of doctrinal elements of the church, especially she's someone who's very concerned with children. And she's been, as again, many of us have been very upset by the abuse crisis, but, you know, she is publicly and committedly Catholic and, and it really has emerged for her from the church's witness to the marginalized and, and love for the marginalized. I think there's something I, I want to bring up too, and that it's the way she talks about uh, what she looks for in, in finding a parish even now, even today. Yeah. So she, she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now, and she goes to a parish called St. Saint, Saint Peter's on Con- Concord Avenue. And she says she goes there essentially because it's the church that is most receptive to liberation theology, which again, was really important in her own conversion in the 1970s and remains what she sees as the most live uh, part of the church intellectual and theological tradition. 
you know, she goes to St. Paul's, which is the more traditional church in Harvard Square, if the boys choir is going to be there. But it's really only she'll go there if the boys choir is going to be there. And she told me some stories about kind of walking out in the middle of what she deemed reactionary homilies. So Mm -hmm. um, she really does look for parishes in that are centered on those who are left behind by uh, American society. You know, she said that for her, religion has always been tied up with economics, racial justice in the lives of children. And she wants to go to parishes where those three things are at the center. Okay, thanks. Uh, Tony's profile of Fanny Howe is Saying the Unsayable, uh, Fanny Howe's Poetry of Bewilderment. And it's featured in the November issue, as are uh, two new poems by Fanny Howe. Is that right, Tony? Yes. Okay, so great. So take a look at the issue and and you can catch up on all of that. Uh, There's more too. And and Regina here is to talk a little bit about not just what's in the print issue, but some of what's also online and in the book's newsletter. Yes. Featured in November's book's newsletter, as well as in the fall book's issue, is Joseph McCartan's review of a new book about the future of organized labor and how it will have to adapt to changing economies. We also online have uh, our managing editor, Kate Lucky, writing on G Tolentino's and Leslie Jameson's new essay collections. Kate considers the role of self-expression in considering the experience of women and pop culture and centering the I in these questions. And that's not selfish and that's not feminine necessarily, but that uh, it's a powerful tool for understanding your experience. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting pairing those two books. And I think Kate did a great job of kind of doing it concisely in a very interesting and, and readable way. Very too, much. So I really recommend it. Yeah. yeah. And what else? Don't you have something that you review too? For I do. Kind of this Happy thing. Halloween, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I reviewed uh, online Sean Hamill's Cosmology of Monsters, which is his debut horror novel about a family that's stalked by a wolf monster. And most of the family chooses to ignore it or copes with it in the each individual's own unhealthy way, except for the youngest child, Noah, who befriends the monster. Mm. So recommend it. I did have the privilege of reading the review. And yes, it sounds like a many layered book. And I think Regina does an excellent yes. job of, uh, of uh, capturing everything uh, that's kind of weird and strange. And <laughs> sounds kind of scary as well. So I, I yeah. recommend it. Just back to the print issue, I kind of want to call attention to some specific reviews as, uh, as well. Uh, Sharon Mesmer wrote on Patty Smith's new book of uh, essays, Year of the Monkey, which I think is really uh, something that listeners should check out in our print issue. And of course, as ever, I'm sure we have a lot of fans of Flannery O'Connor and Valerie Sayers uh, takes a look at a new collection of letters from Flannery O'Connor. Have we missed anything from the fall books issue? I don't believe so. No, probably our best one ever, I would say. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Tony, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And Regina, thanks. Thank you. All right. Support for Commonweal comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Candler offers a master's degree with a focus on Catholic studies, preparing leaders and scholars for ministry in the Catholic Church and research in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Benefit from the resources of top-ranked Emory University in Atlanta, one of the most diverse and rapidly expanding centers of Catholicism in the country. Build ministry skills through hands-on training in parish, school, hospital, or nonprofit settings. Prepare for doctoral studies with world-renowned faculty. Learn from top scholars and guest lecturers through Candler's Aquinas Center of Theology. And take advantage of generous scholarship support. 100% of Master of Divinity students received scholarships last year. For details, log on to candler.emory.edu slash commonweal-podcast.
All right. Kate Lucky, our managing editor, is here. Hi. Good to be here. Hi, Kate. And uh, you uh, were about to hear an interview with Megan Phelps Roper, author of Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. So what drew you to this interview and how did you go about uh, preparing for it? So what drew me to the interview initially was sort of the salacious subject matter. So the Westboro Baptist Church, just as a quick reminder, is a small congregation in Kansas, mostly made up of one family and its extended relatives, people that have married in. And they're known for protesting gay people, soldiers' funerals, the funerals of people who've been the victims of terrorist attacks or mass shootings, um, generally have very uh, radical ideas about God's punishment and justice and sin. And the memoir itself talks about Megan Phelps Roper's process of leaving that church seven years ago, sort of extricating herself from the theology and from her very own family and moving from Kansas to South Dakota. So that's the draw of the story. It's exciting and action-packed to read her narrative of leaving with her sister and packing all their things and driving away. And, of course, also the process by which she became sort of de-radicalized through conversations with people, mostly on social media, Mm -hmm. including the person who would later become her husband, which is something we don't talk about in the interview, but you should read the book for that reason. It's Mm -hmm. a great story. But um, what I was interested in was also the just interiority of the people who are inside of the congregation. And something I talk a lot about with Megan in our interview is the interpretations of scripture, the theology, and sort of the love within the family, all of which keep members of the church committed to the cause. Mm. And so I wanted my approach to not only be about the badness of the church and the goodness of her life now, Mm -hmm. which is true, but about what she valued and learned from approaching scripture in a particular way and also from being part of this close-knit family with so many brothers and sisters and a real sense of community, which I think she really mourns and grieves. So the story for her isn't just triumphant, it's um, a loss as well. Well, great. Let's take a listen to the interview. So I thought we could start out by talking about the loving part of your subtitle, sort of daily life in the Westboro Baptist Church, everything from the layout of the street in your neighborhood to routines and family traditions. Your book really gives a sense of the love and care and intimacy of the big family that you grew up in. So I wonder if you could start there. Yeah, we did everything together. So we we had, you know, pickets that we did every single day. We would have them at the over the noon hour and then also in the evenings. From the time I was five years old, this is when this started. And so we had that, but we also had, you know, evening Bible study together. We had hymn singing practices together. But when they also did, you know, very normal mainstream things like reading books and watching, you know, having family movie night and, and playing video games. And so all of those things, you know, were, were secondary, we, we thought, to our duty to God. And so everything was organized around the church and its ministry. But we had, you know, this, this whole other, you know, my dad would, when I was a kid, like lead cookie making operations anytime he was in charge. I mean, it was just, it was a wonderfully loving and supportive environment. As long as you were a member in good standing, as long as you were not seen as a troublemaker, you know, it was, I mean, it's something that I miss a lot actually since leaving, you know, because, you know, I I realized shortly, actually it was a couple of years after I left. It wasn't that I was just missing this for a short amount of time and eventually it was going to come back. It's like, you don't really find that kind of camaraderie 
outside of like the military or other these you know high control religious groups mm-hmm. or any any kind of high control groups actually i mean they're they're not always organized around religion but yeah so it's realizing that i was never going to have that again you know it was devastating to leave in a lot of ways but that was another devastating moment realizing that i was never going to have that exactly the same but it was wonderful i'm the third of 11 children my four the four youngest in my family are are boys call them the four little boys even <laughs> as they got they weren't that little anymore I miss them. I miss them dearly. You know, they, they were wonderful. How did it come to be that your family was synonymous with the church? Can you give us a brief history of it and your grandfather's ministry? Yeah. So my grandfather was the first pastor of the West Baptist Church. Um, it was founded in 1955. And it was originally part of, you know, like a sister church to the East Side Baptist Church in Topeka. And no one ever hears about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know how long they, they, they're not, they're not around anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long they were gone. They were gone, you know, by the time I, you know, was compost mentis, but yeah, so that's how it started. But almost, you know, it seems like, as I understand it, it didn't take very long before they split cut ties because my grandfather, you know, he had just had this sense of certainty in his own righteousness and his way of seeing things and was just not willing to hear another view of, of any matter that, you know, whenever there was a disagreement. So they very quickly cut ties and the most of the members from Eastside who had come to Westboro stopped coming. Mm. So it was basically a couple of families, my grandfather's and then and another, one other extended family when I was growing up at the church. Slightly more than that now, but it's still almost entirely like one extended family and the people who have married in, you know, families who have married into the church somehow. So it's the reason people think, you know, it's synonymous. The Phelps family with Westboro is because, you know, 80 to 85%, maybe more, maybe slightly less, but it's, it's the vast majority of them is my extended family. Sure. Your grandfather was known in his community originally for his work as a lawyer on civil rights cases. Yeah. So my grandfather moved to Topeka in 1954. It was, uh, I think it was this, it was you said it was the same day that the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka decision came down from the U.S. Supreme Court. And he took that as a sign from God that he should go to law school and start effectuating civil rights in this Jim Crow town. That's how he put it. And so that's what he did. He went to law school. He also required his children and their spouses to go to law school to support him in that work. And, you know, it was, he was very effective. He was no he became known you know CNN actually did a, a story about this several years ago where they went back and, and spoke to a lot of these black civil rights leaders you know to get confirmation that this actually happened and you know they were saying he, my grandfather would take cases that other lawyers black and white wouldn't take he was a he was they said he, he got an award for his undauntedness in mm. his in his his the work that he was doing for that cause he got an award from the NAACP I mean it was it was it was his life until he was disbarred in 1989. And then right on the heels of that was the incident that sparked our protesting. So let's talk about that protesting now. The church is often covered in the media for these protests, which I think from reading your book seems to be the intent that they will draw publicity and attention. And the signs in particular that you were carrying um, from a very young age, God hates fags being one of them, signs at soldiers' funerals, signs protesting the deaths of celebrities uh, or the victims of terrorist attacks or mass shootings. And I think it's obvious and easy to talk about the hurt and pain that those protests cause. But 
one of the things I found most interesting about your book was your explanation of the theological logic behind those signs and your church's ideas about sin and punishment in the Bible. And maybe you can explain that to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So for Westboro, you, you said at the beginning something like a complicated theology. And for Westboro, it just, there is no complication. Mm-hmm. Like they just see it as like, this is the one way of seeing this from the Bible. You know, so God says, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey me and a curse if you won't. They believe in predestination because of a, a ton of different Bible verses. I can quote for you, but I will spare you because I'm sure so many people, I, I think this is, it's something that I think I'll, it's a common, you know, theological conversation and debate, but Westboro wholly believes in predestination. So any time there is some, you know, tragic thing that happens, that is an expression. I mean, that is, that is a message from God. Everything is a message from God. And so, you know, when we first started protesting soldiers' funerals, for instance, you know, I, I went to my mother and I was like, I, I need to understand exactly why we're doing this. So my mom starts with that passage from Deuteronomy about the blessings and the curses. And then she said, you know, can we all agree that a, a dead child is a curse from God and not a blessing? And of course, my siblings and all, all said yes. And then from there, she went to, you know, there's this passage in the book of Hosea, Hosea 9, 9 says, God, where God says, they have deeply corrupted themselves. Therefore, I will remember their iniquity and I will visit their sins. And then shortly after it says, they shall bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. And then Judges 5, 8, they chose new gods, then was war in their gates. And so for them, for Westboro, you know, these examples and, and others, these passages clearly show that God uses war as a way of punishing a nation. So Westboro would say, you know, America has institutionalized sin at every level. There is no debate anymore about whether it's okay to be gay or whether it's okay to commit fornication and adultery, you know, divorce and remarriage, all these things so clearly the Bible forbids. And so therefore, this is idolatry. This is false, a false religious system. And God is using these wars. That's one of the many ways mass shootings, hurricanes, fires, floods, anything bad that happens is is an expression of the wrath of God for our sins. I was struck in the book by how often the passages you just quoted are referenced having to do with God's justice and wrath. And how were other passages in the Bible that may have complicated, to use that word again, those protests yeah. taught and preached passages about turning the other cheek or loving your neighbor, about mercy and grace and yeah. um, welcoming others, tax collectors and prostitutes into the community. How were those passages taught or were they taught? Yeah, no, absolutely they were taught. So the love thy neighbor, like for Westboro, what they do is an expression of loving thy neighbor because the first time that appears in the Bible in Leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18, it says, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, but thou shalt in any wise rebuke him and not suffer a sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So for Westboro, it's a very, that's a very clear passage that to love your neighbor is to rebuke him when you see him sinning. And that if you don't do that, then you hate your brother in your heart. So for them, you know, it's, you know, seeing that God is punishing this nation and all these terrible things are happening. Like we have to go out there and warn people that if they want this to stop, then they need to obey God. That's the only way to end this pain basically. And it's not just curses from God in this life. It is hell in the world to come, eternal torment. And so what more loving thing can you do than to go out and and give people the only answer that will actually change things for the better for them? 
So that's, that's how they see it. You know, verses about mercy and grace, those things were for us. Those things were the expressions of the love of God that were for his people. And we didn't, you know, Westboro, it, like, it was one of those things where they would say that we were the only church on the landscape. Like, so in other words, like, we're the only ones we can see who are doing, like, to, set, to say on the landscape, right, is a way of saying, like, there could be other people, but we don't see them. You know what I mean? I so, see. so the effective, effectively, everybody outside the church is going to hell, even if not like theoretically, like technically there could be other people, but we don't know. That was part of it. It's, it's a really interesting thing that's, and this, this was one of the, you know, the things that I've come to see. There are a lot of things that I've come to see as verses that should have moderated our position. Mm-hmm. One of them, for instance, that I, and this was I've got several several things bouncing around my mind right now. So I, I came to believe that there were several, a lot of things that we were doing that were unscriptural. One of them was the funeral protest. That came from this passage in the New Testament where, you know, Paul is saying, to the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. And that's, again, one of, one of many passages that talks about how we were supposed to be doing the kind of, you know, the, we believe we have this message, but we're doing it in such a way that we are, we were obfuscating the message. And so, and Westboro would say, you know, like how this lands, all we have to do is preach and how it lands on other men's hearts is not our business. That's the prerogative of God. And yet there are all these things in the Bible about how we're supposed to talk to other people. So it says, speaking the truth in love. If truth, and we had a sign, truth equals love right? It was very simple. Like these are equivalent. They are not equivalent. Even in the Bible, they are not equivalent. So speaking the truth in love to the weak, I became as weak. It was a very clear. And then there was, you know, even, and even more, it was one of those, I, I write about this moment in the book where I came to realize, you know, we're claiming to love our neighbor. And at the same time, we had started praying, imprecatory prayers, like praying for the curses of God on our enemies, literally praying for people to die. And so the idea that we could at once claim to be loving our neighbor and then also praying for bad things to happen to them, for God to kill them in all kinds of awful ways and to hurt them in all kinds of awful ways, we would tell them to repent and then we would pray to God that he would preserve them in their sins. And like both of these positions came from the Bible, came from different passages in the Bible. But the fact that we had this enormous logical contradiction, you cannot do both of those at the same time. Like I believed them at the same time, just never in the same moment, right? So, and it was, that was one of those things that I just remember being at a total loss. How can this be? How could we have been doing this and not realized and I think, I think, you know, in hindsight, it's the, just the way that we as human beings, you know, compartmentalize information. They just, the contradiction just never hit me until that moment. And then that was one of the things, one of the many things that helped me see outside of Westboro's paradigm to realize that we were just human beings trying to do what we believed was right. And we had all this evidence from the Bible, but there was so much more that should have changed how we approached other people, how we thought about things ourselves. Westboro would say there's the definition, the one definition of loving your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19, That pass- those passages I quoted. And then this was something I didn't say until after I left. I was talking to another, so I was constantly talking to people about what they believed. Sure. So I was talking to this other woman who's a Christian, and she said, you know, when there's that passage where Jesus is asked, what is my duty in this life? And he says, to love God and to love your neighbor. And he says, and who is my neighbor? 
the response is the story of the Good Samaritan. And there you had, you know, the priest and the Levite, the people who were supposed to be tending to the things of God, seeing the man in need, in practical need of medical attention, clothing, money. And the, the people who were supposed to be tending to the things of God crossed the street and passed by on the other side. And the Samaritan went and saw him and had mercy on him. And he went and said, this happened to you because you're a sinner. Repent. No, that's not what happened. Right. But that's what Westboro would have done. That's the kind of, that's the attitude that we had to, to other people. And so that example, the fact that Jesus gave that example, the, the Samaritan went and clothed him. He put him on his own beast, took him to an inn, gave the innkeeper money to take care of him. And, to, and when you, if you spend any more than this, um, I, when, when I come again, I'll, I'll pay you back. Right. Like we mocked people who went to like, you know, the, in the aftermath of hurricane Katrina or any other of these natural disasters, we mocked those people for like, that's not what they need. They need the word of God. This is what they need. Mm. And they would, you know, man shall not live by bread alone, by bread alone. They still need food. They still (laughs) need, they still have these practical, you know? And so the fact that that was the example that Jesus gave, like it was one of those things of what did I and I was trying to, I was thinking about this. I was talking about this with a friend and I was like, what did I think every time we came upon that passage? And there's many others like, like that. What was I thinking? Mm-hmm. And we you know what I, what I recall thinking is, oh, how evil those priests and those Levites were, these, these Jewish people that should have been, you know, we just had, again, it was always about pointing out the sinfulness of other people rather than embodying that. And again, you know, I'm not saying that there, you know, Westboro, there's a lot of verses that give that kind of very judgmental view of God, but they are not, there are also these other things, again, that should have moderated our positions, if nothing else. Sure. So you start seeing these contradictions as a woman in your mid-20s, is that right? Yeah. And you eventually leave the church with your sister. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like, the sort of joy and discovery that you narrate in the book of road tripping with your sister, wonderful passages about reading, going to the library and seeing (laughs) what other interpretations of scripture, philosophy, love, life and death exist, but then also the heartbreak of estrangement. So the process of, you know, leaving was absolutely devastating. You know, I still can't read that part of the book without crying. I can't think about that time in my life without crying, you know, in too much detail. But it was this, from the moment, it was a four-month period from the moment I, it first occurred to me, you know, that, oh my God, what if this What if this isn't? It was the first time I'd ever really considered the idea that we could be really wrong, like fundamentally mistaken about in our positions. From that moment till the moment I left, it was this four months. And as soon as that thought occurred to me, it was like, a clock started ticking mm-hmm. and you, you you just feel like everyone around me, it felt like everyone around me was dying. Like I, that very soon there was going to come a point where this was all going to go away. All the people that I loved, this life that I had, you know, I, I, that I had lived and had, and had loved. This is, you know, of there, course it was my life. They were my life. And to have to, I remember, you know, going through this period where I, you know, initially I was just so angry. Like, why are these my choices? How, how have I ended up in this place? Right. Wouldn't it be easier for me to just go along with things and I very, stay inside the fold? Very briefly, like that thought flitted through my mind that, that very first, like, could I, could I pretend? And almost as soon as I thought it, no, 
no, mm. not a chance. It was one of those things that, you know, one of the people that I met on Twitter who helped change my mind after I left the church, I was talking to him and I write about this moment in the book too. I talk about it all the time because it was such a, it was just a pivotal moment for me. And I still am just filled with gratitude that he said this. He said, you know, in a way leaving Westboro Baptist church was the most Westboro Baptist church thing you could have done. They're the ones who taught you how to, to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what it cost you. They just never imagined you'd be standing up to them. Mm. And so that was like the realization that he said that what we did, my sister and I, in leaving was both a rejection and an affirmation of everything that, that we'd been taught, right? We were rejecting the specifics of the ideology. We'd come to believe that they were wrong, but we were also living, like embodying, mm-hmm. you know, one of the you know main basic principles that that we taught and to realize that we could honor our parents, honor their father and their mother, that we could honor them even though we had left, that definitely has, has that that reframing of the situation has been something that has been, it's kind of given me um, a bulwark, I guess, something something to hold on to, some grounding, you know, and the realization that I can, yeah, I don't know, it just, it was uh, really important. Sure, that you can hold all that complexity <laughs> at once. And I think the book does a good job of showing that, the love for your family that will never go away and also the deep, sort of repentance and acknowledgement of wrongdoing and the yeah. sort of guilt and shame, but also a feeling of liberation, liberation and new life. Yeah. The liberation part of it. Like I was really shocked. Like, you know, I had been so afraid of actually pulling the trigger, actually leaving and of what would happen afterward. You know, at that point I still believed that God would curse me in all kinds of, you know, terrible ways, you know, and I just, that my life would be meaningless after having walked away from this thing that had been my whole life and this family, you know, and my sister, of course, she's experiencing the same thing. So it's just kind of this feedback loop of fear and, you know, just total devastation and despair. And then after we left, I was, I was shocked by how much relief there was Mm -hmm. actually going through with it was far less awful than act than the contemplation of it you know I think I partly that was just like coming to terms with it like that that I just had to do this I couldn't keep I couldn't keep doing the things that that they had raised me to do because I I I understood that they were wrong I believe that they were wrong but the relief of you know and to now be living in the world and in, again, in some ways, it was kind of terrifying to have to kind of rebuild a worldview like all over and to not have any idea kind of which way was up. Like, what am I, what is my role in life? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? What does it mean to live a good life if not what I was taught all this time? And so to, you know, to be to able to talk to people who believe differently and to not immediately have to judge and condemn them, but to really consider actually consider what they were saying and to examine the evidence and to see like, where does this lead me? How does this, and to have like that intellectual freedom was amazing. I always, I mean, and just like practically speaking, I always joke about how I still get excited to go to the grocery store without permission. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just something like, it sounds weird to say that I don't take it for granted, but I mean, I literally like that it's it's amazing to be able to make a decision and then execute it sure. without having to go through like a, and and the thing is i know that my parents i know that my mother had all good intentions you know all the things that they did there's just you can't legislate a good heart into people right you can't you can try to protect people but it's not 
your, I, I don't believe it's my role as a parent. So, you know, I, I have my, my one-year-old daughter now, and I think about this all the time. I don't, it's my role to raise her, to be able to stand on her own two feet, to be able to judge. Like, I'm not going to be around forever. Like, she needs to be a fully functional, independent human being. And again, I'll, I'll do everything I can to protect her, but I don't think that includes trying to corral her into doing the things that I think are right. Like I need to teach her good principles and then it's going to like, she, she is her own person and she's going to have to live her own life. I love that. I guess we'll end by asking a little bit about sort of your own formation of your good heart while you were at the church. And, and now since you were singing hymns and praising and worshiping while you were at the church, but I'm wondering what was sort of your interior relationship like with God during that time, or did you perceive yourself to have one? And since leaving, how has your spirituality and all these conversations you've had with people about what they've believed changed? How do you feel you've held on to elements of that practice and how you see the world and what parts have you shed or what parts have you taken on anew? Yeah. So when I was at the church, you know, it's a very, God requires obedience. My mom would say, you can sum up the Bible in three words, obey, obey, obey. <laughs> and like, that's really, that was a very honest, you know, take. That's actually what she, what she believes. And they also view humanity as essentially evil, you know, just literally disgusting and corrupt. And, you know, the heart is, my mom would quote this verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it. And so the feeling that I had, the the grace of God, like the fact that I got to be born in this place, like the place where God meets with his people. It's like this, you know, enormous sense of gratitude that, you know, God would have mercy on me in that way. So it was, it was a real, that was the thing that mattered more than anything. And, but I could only show that love and, and respect by obeying, obeying the commandments as Westboro understood them. You know, after I left, you know, I ended up in Deadwood, South Dakota on this reading adventure that you mentioned. And it was in this bed and breakfast, this inn run by Jehovah's Witnesses. And, you know, my sister and I, when we first left, we thought, okay, we can never have anything to do with religion or God again. It's like, there's just no, we can't do this. But there was no chance that it was going to be anything other than, you know, this it was extremely important to talk to a lot of different people about what they believed and why they believed it, what, what their beliefs were based on and how that influenced their actions. And, and so it was a huge part of the conversation was with Jehovah's witnesses. And it was with religious Jews later with secular, (laughs) secular Jews, you know, people in the LGBT community, other Christians, you know, fundamentalist Christians. and, And so it was just all kinds of people. And I think, the sense one you know one of the first things my sister and I would you know would would talk about this like the idea of coming from this place of so much certainty to then to now say like okay now I found the way it just felt there's no way we could do it Mm -hmm. and and also I mean for me I don't want to speak for my sister but I mean for me specifically like there were just when it came to the point speaking of liberation when it came to the point where I could believe that you know maybe the Bible isn't the literal infallible word of God. And when I had that thought, my brain immediately went to, and I read about this in the book, those, these two places that had been such, and, and, and I, you know, I had believed that any resistance that I felt to these ideas was a problem for me 
right? This, it wasn't because they were wrong. It was because my heart was wrong. And so I was constantly, I mean, like, you know, I had just assimilated, like, this is just how I have to think about these passages. I have to believe that this is good. And as soon as I thought, what if it isn't the word of God? I thought about those two passages and was like, I'm so glad I don't have to believe this is good. I don't believe this is good. And so I, this is it's one of those things where, you know, after I left and I'm talking to all these people and realizing that there are alternative ways of reading the text that are still consistent with, you know, the other parts of the Bible, but they're different from Westboro. Like that interpretation is a real thing. Right. And that it really can lead you to very different places. And again, still be consistent with what the words of the Bible actually say. So it's not that I don't think there are alternative views. It's just that I, to those two passages, for instance, and it's, it's not just those two, but, but I've never found, you know, good, something that is satisfying to my sense of, to my understanding of what goodness is. Like, you know, one of the things is the idea of God predestinating people to send them to hell for eternity, like literally creating sentient beings to destroy them and to not just to destroy them, but to torment them continually for eternity. Like there is no, I, I, I don't see, I don't believe that's good. Right. And mostly I just don't believe that. You know, I realized I had all these internalized fears that had been inculcated in me from the time I was a kid and I realized I, I actually just don't believe that. Sure. And to be able to be honest about that, the, the liberation of actually being able to entertain other ideas was wonderful and unreal. Megan, thanks so much for speaking with us today and good luck on the rest of your book tour. Thank you so much for having me. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>